they're looking for, they win. Ignore them, you win. Welcome, everyone. I am Ari Ingle, the Director of Creative Community for Peace. Thank you so much for joining us today. Creative Community for Peace is a nonprofit inter entertainment industry organization comprised of prominent members of the entertainment community who have come together to really do three things. First, to promote the arts as a bridge to peace, whether that is working with Palestinians and Israelis together or building bridges between the Black and Jewish communities here in America. Second, to educate about rising anti-Semitism within the entertainment industry, whether that is doing DEI trainings for entertainment companies or working with digital streaming platforms to better monitor their sites for hates. And finally, to counter the culture boycott of Israel, where we work with every artist who books to perform in Israel to withstand boycott pressure, everyone from Jennifer Lopez to Maroon 5. To learn more about our work and to support our work, please visit ccfpeace.com. That is ccfpeace.com com or creativecommunityforpeace.com. We're glad to have all of you in our public square once again as we present Dispelling the Mist Season 2, a fantastic educational series of conversations with some of the leading experts on the issues and challenges facing Israel and the Jewish people today. In today's conversation, we'll be discussing the threat that is white supremacy. Please feel free to leave questions in the Q&A section of the chat, and I'll try to get to as many of them as possible towards the end of the discussion. This week's guest is Dr. Simon Perdue, who is the Director of Domestic Terrorism Threat Monitor Project and Memory. Dr. Perdue received his PhD in world history from Northeastern University, where he focused on the history of race, racism, and violence. He has been a, doctor a doctoral fellow with the Center of Analysis of the Radical Right, and his forthcoming book, Intersectional Hate, Gender, Race, and Violence on the Transatlantic Extreme Right, explores the way gender has influenced extreme right activism and violence in the United States and the UK. Simon has provided expert analysis on the subject of extremism for a number of media outlets, from CBS, Newsweek, and CNN, to Yahoo and the Washington Post, and many more. He has also provided briefings on a variety of extremism-related topics to the FBI, Department of State, the Treasury Department, Department of Homeland Security, and numerous congressional offices. Welcome, Simon. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So to sort of set the table, just in general terms, what are the trademarks of white supremacists and what are their general views and goals? Well, the, the idea of white supremacy is, is quite a broad one. Um, and the, the, the scope of their beliefs, um, their, their forms of activism that they take um, is, is very wide and it's very varied. Generally, though, it can all be boiled down to a kind of core set of ideals. These are the belief that white people are superior to all other races. Um, that's obviously tied into anti-blackness, um, broader, more broadly racism, and of course, anti-Semitism, um, which is deeply, deeply ingrained within these various ideologies that make up the broader movement. Um, many of these groups believe in uh, causing a systemic collapse and building their own uh, ethnostate through a violent racial war, um, while others believe in using the electoral system to gain prominence and to push through the, these white supremacist policies, racist ideas uh, at a political or electoral level. So it's a very, very broad scope, um, but, but those are the core ideas of, of what white supremacists broadly believe, both here in the United States and around the world. 
Right. So looking at some of the memory materials that I got, uh, your pamphlet on them listed 12 domestic white national extremist groups from the Proud Boys to the Folkish Resistance Movement, you know, organizations many people haven't even really even heard about. How many of these groups really are there and how does their ideology differ? Yeah, there's there's dozens and dozens. I mean, within the United States, um, we're tracking uh, 50 or 60 different named groups um, within the United States. Um, we've, you know, the, this is a very like a field that, that changes constantly as groups rename, as they dissolve and reemerge, they splinter into multiple different groups as well. So it's a constantly emerging space or constantly evolving space. Um, and that's just the United States. You know, we have to look outside the United States as well. Uh, you've got key sort of hubs for these kind of movements within Europe, in Australia, um, even in Mexico, um, and obviously Canada as well. So that's that's something to really you know be cognizant of um, is that the global nature of this movement. We're increasingly seeing a lot of these groups um, kind of talking internationally, uh, mm -hmm. growing internationally, starting new uh, chapters. We've got American groups starting chapters in Australia. Uh, we've got, you know, Canadian groups with, um, you know, I guess, sister groups in the likes of France uh, and the United Kingdom. So this is this is a truly global space. And as I said, the number of groups is constantly growing. Is there any sort of centralized like nexus between them? Is there any sort of over like uh, an organizational body where maybe they get together once a year and meet or is that not how they operate? Not so much. I think that the central nexuses that we talk about are actually the platforms that they engage on. Um, mm -hmm. the, uh, the places which facilitate that transnational, international cooperation and communication tend to be platforms such as Telegram, Gab, uh, even you know, nowadays Twitter as well, um, which are the platforms that allow these groups to communicate and to to propagate their hate and their ideology. Right. So how do these people in general terms are being radicalized? Is it on these platforms where they're sort of learning this ideology of hate or is it more of a homegrown thing in a local community? Mm -hmm. It's becoming increasingly online. I, traditionally, we saw the radicalization process happening at um, sort of radical events, whether it be gun shows or uh, book talks given by extremist authors. Um, but increasingly, we're seeing the online spaces playing a really important role. Uh, and while that change is happening, while that increase is happening, the audience that is being exposed to these ideas is growing significantly. We're also seeing younger kids now being exposed to these ideas as well, which is a whole other problem that right. we're dealing with as younger and younger people are being radicalized. Um, for many of these people, many of these platforms, it's difficult to stumble across them accidentally. But neo-Nazis and white supremacists go on to the more mainstream online spaces and they link to those extreme spaces. They uh, push other users towards those ideas through sort of memes and that kind of metapolitical sort of warfare that we're seeing online uh, and driving younger people and driving wider audiences onto these platforms like Telegram into these chats and radicalizing them through that process. Right. So what are the main outlets? Is 8chan and Telegram? I'm assuming so you're saying, so essentially saying like they, they go on 8, uh, 8chan and Telegram and some of these and then try and push them into mm -hmm. Facebook and Twitter. Um, is, is that really is what that what it's looking like? Yeah, so I think that the biggest platform is is Telegram. Telegram plays a key role in all of this. It's kind of the space where uh, neo-Nazis and white supremacists feel most free to express their opinions without censorship uh, right. and, and without consequence. Um, but they're also using the likes of 4chan and, and the, the now dark web versions of 8chan 
um, uh, as well as sort of more dedicated extremist platforms, you know, dedicated to various subsections of their ideology. We've got a few accelerationist websites uh, that we're following on a, on a daily basis, which are spreading these ideas that we then see going out into those more mainstream places like the Facebook groups, like Twitter, Instagram, even now Snapchat and TikTok, which is a big one as well, uh, and then using those ideas to pull people into those extreme spaces. Right. And what about video games? I was reading that Twitch, where a lot of young kids, really young kids, spend a lot of their time these days. And even something like Minecraft, I heard there's some sort of sort of uh, infiltration into those. W what's happening on those sites? Yeah, so gaming is actually a really important uh, locus for a lot of these groups. They do see it as an opportunity to speak to a younger audience. I think critically with video gaming culture, uh, memes and edginess, as it's often referred to as, is is part of the culture. So it's easier to slip in these ideas, these these uh, this terminology, uh, these conspiracy theories, and and just have the the veneer of of edginess over the top of it to make it seem less extreme and less threatening. Um, right. Twitch is is a really, really good example. We see a lot of neo-Nazis using Twitch, uh, as well as Steam and, and other video gaming platforms to um, you know go into to groups, go into chats, into streams, and spread their ideas. You'll see them posting swastikas. You'll see them talking about ideas like the Great Replacement um, right. and, and using that to bring people in. Right. So I just want to read a stat. According to the ADL, more than half of the ideologically motivated extremist mass killings since 1970 have taken place in the 12, last 12 years. So we're seeing a real uptick in this. And right-wing extremists were responsible for all of the extremist-related murders in 2022, with white supremacists committing the majority of them, 84%. So how many people are part of these white extremist groups? And is violence a core part of their ideology? Yeah, I, I, violence is definitely a core element in that ideology. Um, that's something we're seeing on a daily basis are incitements to violence, threats of violence, particularly violence against um, prominent individuals. We've seen an uptick in that during the, the COVID-19 pandemic um, with you know individuals like Dr. Fauci and, and other public health officials increasingly becoming targets for these violent threats. Um, so we're monitoring that constantly and providing that information to, to law enforcement when we see it. Um, but but this aesthetic of violence is increasingly becoming a problem as well. You see accelerationist groups, some of which you might have heard of, like Atom Often Division or The Base, which you know were in the headlines a few years ago. Uh, groups like these use um, materials, promotional materials that just exude violence. There's blood splatters, there's weapons, there's skull masks. It's all part of this aesthetic of violence, which is central to, to how they portray themselves. They want to be feared. Um, and the possibility of real world violence is a really, really important part of that, of that, that, that fear they're trying to propagate and that terror that they are trying to, to kind of encourage. So violence is a, is a very, very central part of this. In terms and, of the other part, oh, yeah, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, in terms of the other part of your question about how many people are, are a part of these right. groups, that does vary dramatically. You know, in some of the groups online that we're following, we see, you know, numbers in the thousands. In terms of the real world, it's sometimes difficult to track how many people are a part of them. But there are no shortage of violent neo-Nazis, both online and, and out there in the real world. And I think that's something we need to be very aware of. Is there any idea, say, just in America, like what percent of the population like hold these views? Maybe aren't necessarily belong to one of these white supremacist groups, but hold these sorts of views? Um, it, it's very, very hard to put a number on that, sadly, because, again, there's issues with, uh, you know, not knowing how many are members and, and how many hold these these views. 
those who self-report versus those who don't, it, it's kind of difficult to put a number on it. But there are definitely thousands of, of you know, active neo-Nazis and white supremacists in the United States who would be, you know, members of these groups. Right. And so you, you outlined a little bit, but just to talk about their tactics to achieve their goals, you talked about social media, there's militancy. Curious to see like what sort of militancy we're talking about. And is there other tactics, maybe like lawfare, you know, using the courts to try and sue or to change rules and regulations? Um, what does that look like? Yeah, so that again varies across the spectrum. Um, we have everything from that lawfare aspect, which would be linked more to the likes of the sovereign citizen movement, um, slightly more organized and political groups who will use right. the courts, who will use the law um, to kind of push through their, their own ideas. Um, in terms of the social media strategy, I mentioned earlier, but that mimetic warfare, that kind of meme conflict uh, feeding into the idea of a culture war is, is really, really central. Um, we see a lot of these groups, you know, grabbing on to current events, mm -hmm. um, creating, you know, violent white supremacist memes relating to these, whether it be, you know, the likes of Kanye West at the end of last year and his sort of spiral into anti-Semitism. Or, uh, you know, whether it be the war in Ukraine, we're seeing, you know, neo-Nazis use these popular um, trending topics, if you will, um, right. to spread their ideas through memes, through messages, through uh, video content, etc. So they're, they're really actually very, very good at using the internet and using that kind of mimetic warfare to, to get their message across. We're also seeing a, an uptick in militancy as well. Um, we, we saw a decline uh, post uh, January 6th, as um, you know, a lot of groups were, were somewhat put off by the, uh, the, the legal response to January 6th and, and the, the prosecutions that followed that. But we're now seeing an uptick as well with the, the likes of protests at LGBTQ events uh, across the country, not only in the United States, but uh, in Europe and Canada as well. Uh, militant groups, armed groups turning up to those. So that's, that's also something we're tracking. And so what are social media and tech sites doing to counter this? Are, are they being active in trying to suppress this stuff? And even for instance, and I would love for you to talk about this, I was reading a report you guys did on the Internet Archive to spread hate. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about that, too. It's a massive online digital library that these groups were overtaking to spread this sort of hatred. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of what, what social media and tech sites are doing, it, it really does vary. Um, some are better than others. Um, and some tend to focus on particular areas. YouTube, for example, has been very, very good at removing jihadi content from their platforms. Um, they have not been as effective with white supremacist and neo-Nazi content. Uh, even within that, there's you know more of an active approach when it comes to American neo-Nazis and white supremacists. But we find that Canadian white supremacists and European groups, particularly those who communicate in languages other than English, whether that be German or Polish, or the two languages that we, we focus on there, um, the, the YouTube has not been particularly good at removing that content from the platform. And that's, that's something that we've reported on quite extensively. Um, obviously within the last six months, um, things have changed at Twitter, which is another, you know, particularly popular right. one. Um, and we've seen a lot more white supremacists and neo-Nazi extremists moving back towards Twitter in the hope that they might be part of this digital town square that has been talked about with, with less censorship. Uh, many of them have managed to stay on the platform and have accrued uh, up to 20,000 uh, followers um, in some cases. Um, while others well, you know, broke the terms of service pretty quickly and, and were removed. Um, so it, it is piecemeal. And a lot of these companies are, are, you know, they have strategies in place, but it, it 
isn't catching enough. We're seeing right. a lot of, of neo-Nazis thriving on, on these mainstream platforms. Right. And it doesn't, um, these don't just before we jump around the, the, the library uh, archive. So I'm assuming this content and the speech violates the terms of service of these companies. And I, as we've actually found in our work too, yes, right. Not enforcing them. But in America, you were talking about, so does free speech, I guess the protection of free speech is so strong here that there's no legal aspect. There's no like law enforcement thing that can be done about these, right? Or is, <laughs> is there something in the laws that can be done against these groups? Well, sadly, outside of threats of violence uh, and direct incitement to violence, um, there isn't much that can be done at the legal level. Um, that, that sort of freedom of speech um, element does really come into play because the the freedom of association and the freedom to say um you know whatever you want within the bounds of of acceptable speech um is is kind of core um to to you know this kind of idea in the united states outside of the us that's obviously a very different situation whether that be canada united kingdom australia um where hate speech is is prosecuted more more readily right um, but for the platforms themselves, you know, that that doesn't come into play. Free speech isn't a factor for the platforms. Um, so I think that's where most of the the kind of strategy in terms of countering this needs to take place is at the platform level. Right. And then so talking about the Internet Archive, just for people that don't know, there's this massive, massive digital library basically housed in San Francisco where people can upload, upload content, doesn't require any credentials, verification, there's no way to flag or remove like the content. Groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS use it to spread materials. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and what you were seeing on there and if anything can be done about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the Internet Archive allows um, a, a very a, a variety of different sort of approaches when it comes to saving content. It allows people to save website pages as an archived copy, which means that if web pages are taken off the Internet, they can still exist on the Internet Archive. Um, that means that those sites which have broken laws in the United States through threats of violence or through violent content um, can remain active or at least uh, visible. Um, through that through that website. So we're seeing a lot of neo-Nazis, uh, particularly the more violent accelerationist neo-Nazis, saving their sites uh, either preemptively or, or, you know, obviously after they've been taken offline um, on the Internet Archive. So that's there's a real danger there in terms of the continued propagation of violent content. Similarly, it allows um, uploading of content. We've seen how uh, a number of, of you know, mass shooters and, and white supremacist terrorists, such as the Highland Park shooter um, from last uh, July 4th. Uh, he used the Internet Archive to host a lot of videos um, and, and photograph content as well. Um, so that it's used very, very extensively by extremists because, as you say, it's not easily monitored. It's not easy to, to flag something or take it down unless you go directly to the company. And, and usually that needs to be done through legal means um, as they're, they're fairly you know, unwilling to, to take down content without being um, pushed to do so. Right. And but this literally contained Nazi content, copies of Der Strummer, the anti-Semitic Nazi propaganda newspaper. It contains organizing tools, training manuals, recruitment videos, manifestos. And it's just all sitting there waiting for people to to use and tap into. And exactly. Interesting. So what can people do to try and get this stuff down from there? What, what is it? Is it going through the Congress people in in California? Is it is it a federal thing? 
I think political pressure at all levels is, is a really important element uh, in terms of countering the, the impact of the Internet Archive and, and other sites online that are allowing this content to, to propagate. I think when it comes from multiple angles, whether that be federal, state, local, um, that can be very, very effective in um, pressuring companies to take action, uh, particularly, you know, in the, in the likes of California's um situation you know companies based in california receiving pressure from the californian government can be can be a very very effective strategy so uh, i think political pressure is is the is the one thing that can be done on our level to to kind of get change in this right. area and I, and I think groups like ours need to do a better job of raising awareness about things like that that most people don't know even exist i'm um, <laughs> shifting to the jew hatred of these groups i would assume jew hatred is core to their ideologies what can you tell us about this what sort of threat do they pose to the jewish people it's a, it's a very significant threat. I think you know anti-Semitism generally and Jew hatred is is core and in, in the ideology of these groups, whether it be from you know white supremacist anti-government neo-Nazi right across the board. Um, it always comes back to anti-Semitism, and that's there at the very very center of this ideology. Uh, even those conspiratorial ideologies like QAnon, those conspiracies can be brought back to to a core anti-Semitism there as well. Um, in terms of the threat that is presented, I mean, you just have to look at the uptick in anti-Semitic violence over the last uh, few years to see the growing threat that that these groups present. Uh, we're seeing continued attacks on synagogues uh, and places of worship. Um, we're also seeing uh, continued rhetorical attacks and um, vandalism uh, increasing in, in Jewish neighborhoods across the United States as well. Right. Uh, there's a couple of groups who are regularly targeting these these communities, uh, these neighborhoods, these places of worship um, with flyers, with graffiti, um, which, you know, link back to these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and promote violence against Jewish communities as well. Um, so that's something which is really, really uh, concerning. I think also something that we're seeing is that whenever anything happens in the world that these groups don't like, they will always pin it back on Jews right. and on the Jewish community. Uh, it always comes back to this anti-Semitic idea. Um, so, you know, you know, whenever we talk about the Ukraine war or we talk about um, even natural disasters or the train crash in East Palestine in Ohio, um, these are constantly being blamed on Jews and on the Jewish community and are being used to incite violence against those communities. Right. And one thing you hear a lot from these groups is about the Zog conspiracy. For people that don't know, that's the Zionist occupation government or Zionist occupied government, um, sometimes also referred to as the Jewish occupational government. What can you tell us about this conspiracy theory that posits that Jews secretly are in control of the governments of the Western world? Yeah, well, you, you've hit it pretty much right on the head there. The, the Zog idea is the idea that um, either through direct involvement or through influence uh, policy uh, at the federal level in the United States and at, at the international governmental level as well uh, is being influenced by by Jews and by by influential Jews and this is being linked into to things like you know Jeffrey Epstein conspiracy theories and uh, we see one of the groups that we follow uh, produces uh, flyers which label you know every element of the the current administration or every element of the CDC as being Jewish uh, they like to believe that the government is entirely controlled by Jewish or Israeli influence um, and that again is used to to um, encourage um, their anti-Semitism, encourage their anti-government extremism, um, and encourage incitement to violence uh, in both cases as well. 
Right. So it's almost like the protocols of the elders of Zion is that they've taken that mantle and infused it into their work these days. Exactly, exactly. And so much of this goes back to to the likes of the protocols, to the likes of, um, you know, the the Nazi regime and, and the um, use of, of anti-Semitism in terms of delegitimizing uh, the Weimar government and delegitimizing um, various different governments as well. They're, these ideas find their roots there and have propagated and have, and have spread here in the United States and around the world since then. Right. And just that actually it makes an interesting question. What are sort of like the roots of this, like historically? Is it starting with the the, the Nazis or I guess maybe before that, the Russians? Um, <laughs> like where is that white supremacist? When does that sort of start? Well, it, it goes back a long way <laughs> beyond beyond the Nazis. And I think, you know, whenever we look at, at you know, white supremacism and um, anti-Semitism, you know, you've got to look back into even the 19th century right. in terms of the emergence of some of these ideas. Um, we saw this with the Russians. We saw the the creation of this idea of, of Judeo-Bolshevism when it, when the, the Russian Revolution was happening in 1917. And then as it, as we moved into the, um, the, the Weimar era and the emergence of the Nazi party in Germany, uh, as well as similar movements in the United Kingdom, uh, in um, right across Europe and France, and, and even here in the United States, um, you're seeing the conflation of white supremacy with anti-Semitism. Uh, even the KKK in the United States um, at that point in time uh, were, were organizing around this kind of anti-Semitic idea, the use of the term of, of Zog or the Zionist occupied government there. Um, so these ideas really began to conflate at that point. And then from there, you know, we moved into the, the 20th century and and uh, obviously to where we are today. Right. And you mentioned a little bit about the great replacements theory, um, which is something I think a lot of people have heard about now. Uh, when the white nationalists marched in Charlottesville, they were chanting the Jews should not replace us. What can you tell us about this theory and the idea that the Jews are the number one enemy of the white man? Yeah, so the Great Replacement Theory, um, it all really comes down to the idea that the white population is being replaced um, through you know, the idea of white genocide or um, through out, outbreeding or, or sort of, you know, um, through emigration as well. Um, the, this ideology has a few different iterations and a few different kind of versions, um, but all of them come down to the idea that this is being orchestrated or controlled by Jewish interests. Um, again, it links to that um, Zionist occupied government idea, which says that the Zionist occupied government wants to eradicate whiteness. It wants to eradicate the white population by encouraging mass migration from outside the United States or Europe, uh, as well as encouraging declining birth rates among, uh, among the white population. Um, that's why, you know, you, you've got the likes of the Christchurch shooter in uh, New Zealand who, you know, said in, in his manifesto, it's the birth rates, it's the birth rates, it's the birth rates. Right. That's central to those ideas. Um, the idea that the white population is, is being replaced and it's being used to incite direct violence like we saw in Christchurch. Right. So I want to talk briefly about another attack, which was the Poway Synagogue shooting in San Diego in 2019. The perpetrator, John Ernst, considered himself a European and Christian. And in his manifesto, this was really like the heart of the attack, that he was slaying evil in the name of Jesus. His manifesto stated, you know, you can't love God if you do not hate Satan. You can't love righteousness if you do not also hate sin. You know, you can't love your own race if you're not you know, going out to try and destroy those people that are trying to destroy your race. 
Um, you know, in his mind, there's essentially no option but to kill Jews, lest his friends be destroyed by Jews, you know. Um, so what can you tell us about this ideology that seems to share with a lot of these people that are carrying out these attacks, like the attack in Christchurch, where it really seems to me that white supremacy is almost like just Christian fanaticism or Christian fundamentalism, and in, in a sense. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting because there, you know, again, like I, I keep going back to that, this is a very varied uh, space and, and a very very wide issue, uh, and there are differing ideas on this across that spectrum. At the core, though, I think the idea of what. Um, was was said by John Ernest, the perpetrator of the the Poway uh, synagogue shooting, is the idea that that love and hate are one are two sides of the same coin, um, and the idea and it's used rhetorically by neo Nazis to kind of soften their message in many cases. The idea that they don't hate other people, they just love themselves. They love white the white race, and they will do whatever it takes to preserve the white race. Um, so that kind of idea of of love being used to to justify violence is 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 deeply um you know ingrained in this movement and it and it allows people to radicalize to the point of violence in terms of the idea of, of it being sort of a, a christian fanaticism fanaticism or christian extremism um that that's certainly an element in many of these cases however many of these groups are deeply divided on the issue of of christianity we've actually seen a lot of discourse recently talking about how uh, christianity is quote-unquote jewish um so again they they will call everything uh that they don't like jewish we see many of these groups actually resorting to uh, either norse paganism or even esoteric nazism which views hitler as their deity um which is a, a very very sort of twisted ideology that that is uh, it created a religion out of this, out of, out of, out of Nazi ideas. Um, but yeah, there, there's definitely that element of, of sort of a, a fanaticism, a Christian fanaticism that, that many of these shooters, such as John Ernest, um, have. Uh, obviously, you know, we've also seen in the case of Dylan Roof that the Christian communities are, are being targeted by, you know, these these ideologies as well um so it's a very varied space um when it comes to religion and it's a it's a big question that is is kind of raised a lot in these spaces online interesting yeah his manifesto it was as you mentioned earlier the jews were both the communist marxists and also he wanted to attack them because they were the capitalists running the banks and mm -hmm. you know he had a whole litany of charges from running slavery to promoting race mixing so it, I guess it's a very fungible sort of ideology. And I guess at heart, maybe it does not always make sense, but the heart of it is, uh, I guess, white domination. And somehow the Jews are uh, infiltrating and affecting the race through a number of different methods. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This is a, a space that's full of contradictions, um, you know, a few of which you've, you've, you've just highlighted. Uh, there are many, many more contradictions like this, um, things that don't make sense on the surface. Um, and at the end of the day, what, what we have to remember is this all comes back to justifying um, their hatred. Uh, justifying the hatred of Jews, their hatred of people of color, the hatred of the LGBTQ community, um, and their promotion of, of white supremacist ideas. Um, and ultimately their end goal of, of creating a white ethno state um, and, and in many cases, the elimination of anyone that doesn't fit their their model of whiteness. Right. And how educated are some of these leaders of these groups? I mean, are there like professors, doctors that are in charge of some of these groups or is this, you know, I don't know, some just uh, people angry that they're a lot in life and, uh, you know, their economic place in, in America? 
Yeah. Well, there's there's a lot of, I think, misconceptions popularly about, um, you know, who who is a white supremacist and who, who could be a neo-Nazi. And you're right in saying that, yeah, many of the leaders of these groups are, you know, they do have PhDs, they do have um, positions in universities, they um, one of the, the main um, ideologues of the 20th century when it comes to neo-Nazism, William Pierce, um, was, a, was a PhD um, and held positions in universities. He was a physics professor, I believe. Um, similarly, we have many of the, the, the neo-Nazis today who are writing, who are writing for the blogs and producing uh, a lot of the, the ideas um, that, that are being used by these groups are very well educated and very eloquent uh, and in many cases are very well connected. That's why we're seeing think tanks emerging um, that are that are completely white supremacist. Um, you, you had to look at Richard Spencer's movement a few years ago um, to see many of those, those people and those voices in those spaces um, who, who were well educated and who were very eloquent and were able to make these ideas make sense to their intended audience. Uh, but broadly speaking, you know, aside from you know, the core being, you know, whiteness, there, there really is no set demographic for neo-Nazis and white supremacists. And it, it, it covers the entirety of society. Um, and that, that's why I think this poses such a threat today. And the internet has really, really helped push that forward. Right. Now let's turn to white nationalist groups and Palestinian militant collaboration, which I think people may find interesting. Infamously, many leaders of the Palestinian community support Hitler and the Nazis during World War II with their sort of joint desire to eradicate Jews. If people don't know the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem back then, Hajimin al-Husseini infamously made a visit to Berlin to visit Hitler at the height of the war. Um, and unfortunately today, there is once again an affinity by these neo-Nazis for Palestinian groups such as Hamas. Um, we also see in some Palestinian protests in the West Bank and Gaza, for instance, uh, Palestinians waving and burning swastikas. Um, on the white nationalist front, you have National Party co-chairman Gregory Conti in a message in Arabic to the Arabic world stating we must cooperate and fight in our uh, common struggle against the Jews. So how closely is the connection between neo-Nazi groups and Palestinian groups? Um, and don't these groups also hate Muslims and Arabs as well? Or is Jews like the common enemy that sort of must be focused on and taken care of first? Yeah, well, I, you know, to address the first part of your question, um, the the relationship or the support for Palestinian groups from neo Nazis it, it ebbs and flows. You know, when um, attacks happen in Israel, um, or jihadist attacks happen in even Europe or the United States, um, we see increases and in upticks in support, at least rhetorically, for these groups from neo Nazis online. Many of them promote the idea of uh, using Islamist or jihadist terrorism uh, to advance their own, you know, hopes of a race war. Um, so there's that kind of ebb and flow of of when when things are happening um, in the Middle East or or in Europe, and um, we see a lot more neo Nazis talking about it. Critically, also, we've seen neo Nazis adopting the aesthetics. Of, of what they call white jihad um, and the promotion of ideas like white Sharia. Um, so we've seen them using many of the aesthetics used by the likes of Hamas and Hezbollah, um, using the iconography of those groups to promote alliance, etc. cetera, uh, particularly accelerationists, particularly those groups who want to see uh, chaos and want to see the, the fall of society. They see a potential alliance there as being something that could help bring forward that kind of race war that they're they're hoping for. Um, I will say that in many cases this is this is a bit of a one-way street. 
um, when we talk about that rhetorical support. Many of these groups who are supporting the Taliban, who are supporting Hamas and Hezbollah are not receiving support back. Right. Um, and, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that that there, there's not much in terms of actual communication between them at this point in time. However, the example you raise of, of Gregory Conte, who, who you know, put out that message in almost perfect Arabic um, shows that there is a willingness among some of these people to actually really reach out and promote direct cooperation. We've also, you know, tracked a couple of podcasts and live streams over the past uh, 12 to 24 months in which we do have uh, representatives from uh, Palestinian groups and in one case, um, an Iranian jihadist um, talking to um white supremacists from around the world, um, you know, including those here in the United States, and talking about potential common ground. And you're right in saying that that, that common ground is their anti-Semitism. I think at the end of the day, the core of, of, of neo-Nazi ideology, as I've said, is anti-Semitism, Jew hatred, and, and ultimately this exterminationist impulse that they have. Um, and they see the threat to Israel um, uh, from jihadist and Islamist groups as being kind of a really, really uh, important tool for them in terms of challenging uh, the Jewish community globally from, from both sides, both here in the United States and uh, in the Middle East as well. Right. And there was a member of the Minnesota Boogaloo movement who was arrested on charges of trying to work with Hamas and raise money for them. Um, so it's really, you know, I, I, there may be, as you're saying, sort of like uh, ulterior motors here, perhaps they believe Jews are the weakest when people are attacking Israel and just sort of using Israel as a leverage point, you know? So how, how are they stoking the flames here? And you also talk about, I just want to, something also mentioned was the race war, this idea of like eventually like causing chaos for this race war. Can you also talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so many of these groups rely on the idea of a, of a race war as being their ultimate goal, um, fomenting, uh, societal, you know, discordance um, and um, I guess conflict to the point of there being a, you know, physical civil war um, between the races, between you know, white people and people of color, in which ultimately they view uh, white people coming out on top and being able to form their own ethno state. Um, mm -hmm. This this relies on an idea called accelerationism, um, which um, is essentially an ideology which promotes random acts of violence. Uh, as a way of destabilizing society and pushing society towards an eventual uh, conflict like that race war we talked about through to, through a collapse, essentially. Um, so when they're supporting groups like ha Hamas and Hezbollah and even ISIS, um, what they are doing is they're hoping that the acts of violence perpetrated by these groups will destabilize society further on a global level um, and um, give them opportunities to engage in conflict and to 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 see out that kind of fantasy of uh, a race war in a white ethno state. Right. So essentially, like they would love to see Israel enter another war and become World <laughs> War Three. And I guess their vision is that somehow the white people will rise up and win that war. Exactly, exactly. That's their vision. Um, you know, I think in for for European groups and for North American groups, the vision is uh, the expulsion or um, extermination of of all non-white people, um, and you know, through the process of this war, uh, and then the creation of of white ethno states within those spaces. So that that is their ultimate goal. Um, in many cases, you know, they're very open about this. Um, you hear many of these groups using the phrase, you know, race war now or um, Rahowa, which is racial holy war. Um, and, you know, that 
that language of of all out global warfare uh, and and white supremacy is is really central to these movements. And so a lot of people on the webinar live in California. I think uh, many would actually find it surprising that the state is actually a big hub of white supremacy. You know, why California and what sort of localized threat are we facing here? Mm -hmm. Well, we, you know, one thing we always say is that there's no state in which this this stuff doesn't exist. Um, California has become a big hub for it. Um, I think that's largely because of the size of California um, and also because um, just of the, you know, the diversity that is there in that state and that the diversity which makes California so so great is something that's resented by many of these white supremacists within California. Um, we actually have seen a number of, of groups recently really um, doubling down in California. Um, we saw one group in Danville, um, just in the Bay Area, I believe, who were threatening synagogues in the area um, and doxed and harassed um, the, the rabbis in that synagogue, uh, posting their personal identifying information online um, and sort of promoting violence against those those rabbis. So that's, that's you know, the kind of threat we're looking at in California. We also see the emergence of, of organized... Um, you know, white supremacist gangs in California, you know, labeling themselves as, uh, you know, active clubs or, or various different um, names that they use for their for their groups. Uh, these tend to be very localized, pretty well organized and connected to a broader national and even international network. Um, and, and that's definitely something which is is cause for concern because they tend to to operate on that local level um, to present a, a very real threat towards Jewish communities and, and communities of color within those spaces. Right. And one very active group in California, which has got a lot of attention lately, is the Goyim Defense League, which you mentioned a little bit, and their group's leader, John Mendeo, I believe his name is. <laughs> um, they are, for people that don't know, behind the anti-Semitic leaflets being thrown on people's lawns across the city, um, now across the country. And they're the ones hanging the banners on freeway overpasses. What can you tell us about this organization, like when they started, um, what sort of threat do they pose? and why they can't be arrested for this sort of behavior. Yeah, so they they are a very very active group who have been growing almost exponentially uh over the past 2 years, uh maybe a little longer than that. Uh John Minadeo was based in um the Bay Area in Petaluma, California. Um, he has now moved actually to Orlando. However, there's still a very, very significant um, presence in California of this group. Uh, they toe the line. They're very, very careful with not breaking laws relating to speech, uh, not threatening violence, although sometimes members do slip up and, um, you know, do break laws when it comes to distributing those flyers and, and dropping um, their banners over, over highway overpasses. Um, so, you know, they have a, a vast network that goes right across the country and now internationally as well. Uh, we actually saw John Minadeo uh, make headlines last, uh, I believe it was September, um, when he and one other affiliate of the group traveled to the Auschwitz concentration camp in Poland and held up anti-Semitic signs there. They were actually arrested for that mm -hmm. action. Um, we also saw members of the group project anti-Semitic messaging onto the Anne Frank House in uh, Amsterdam in the Netherlands. So we're seeing a, a growing international influence from this group that started in the Petaluma area. Um, 
they they are still, as I said, very very active in California as well. And we we often see them uh, do this kind of real world activism, as it were, where they will turn up outside Jewish communities, synagogues, etc., uh, and hold you know demonstrations with megaphones loudly, you know, spreading anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, um, you, you know racially and anti-Semitically abusing uh, passers-by. Um, and I think most prominently recently, they traveled through Hollywood and West Hollywood in a rented U-Haul van, uh, which was draped with, with you know, anti-Semitic, racist and homophobic messaging across the side, mm-hmm. um, ab- abusing people from, from that van. So that's the kind of action we're seeing them doing. They're incredibly public and incredibly prominent. Um, and they really thrive on the media attention that this brings them. Um, right. They they regularly post streams online boasting about the the local news coverage they're getting or the national or even international news coverage they're getting, um, and you know the, the people behind it are are you know very narcissistic and um, really want this attention on them as they believe that's a way to get their message out there further. And do you think that group in particular poses any physical violent threats, or are they more rabble rousers uh, sort of trolling the Jewish community? Well, one of the the tactics of of the white supremacist movement broadly is is that kind of differentiation between, um, you know, whether it be a political or a public arm, and then a more militant wing that lies under the surface. We've seen this in Scandinavia, in Germany, and here in the United States as well. And the the, the GDL, or the Goyan Defense League, are a really good example of this happening in the United States. Um, The prominent public members of the group... um, regularly you know denounce acts of violence they they distance themselves from acts of violence however um whenever you know acts of violence do happen it's it's not uncommon to see their flyers their materials in the possession of the perpetrators uh particularly when it comes to vandalism um there was they did a, a, a tour in Texas last year um, and were protesting outside of synagogues in Austin. And then the next day, um, there was a firebomb attack on one of those those synagogues in Austin. Right. Um, and it's, it is you know not confirmed, but widely believed that it was a GDL uh, affiliate, at least, or a supporter who, who perpetrated that attack. Um, so that's key to how these groups operate. You know, the right. public side, in order to avoid censorship, avoid prosecution, uh, distance themselves from the violence, but the supporters the affiliates and the members um, will, you know, will engage in violence. And there's always a risk of violence there from from members of these groups. Right. You know, I think that we see that a lot of times in anti-Semitism in general, where people debate whether it's more, you know, dangerous in the right or the left. The right, usually it is these physical attacks. Left, it's an ideology. It's a thought. And I guess, right, a a group like the Going Defense League, while they may not be creating or, or, or conducting violent attacks, they're spreading an ideology where you get these lone wolves and radicalized um, other people. But just one last question from my end, then we're going to go to some audience questions. Um, just to briefly touch on Europe, your materials show there are many international groups, as you mentioned, in Europe. Um, in Germany, I've been reading the papers uh, where the reports of literally neo-Nazis and high-level commands in the army. What sort of threat are we seeing in Europe in general? Um, and could these racist nationalist movements literally return to power in Germany? Is that a possibility ever? I, I think that's always a possibility, and that's something that we really do have to to consider as as a possibility. Now, probably more than at any point since this the Second World War, um, you're right in saying that that high level um, members of the army, not only in Germany but in France as well, um, you know, were found to to believe in in neo Nazism, white supremacism, and accelerationism. 
Um, and you just have to look at the likes of Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria, even Greece, to see how neo-Nazis are, are capitalizing on um, sort of broader societal fears. They're capitalizing on uh, conflicts that are emerging to uh, promote their their ideas and to, to find political foothold and to try and push forward their ideas on a, on a national level. Something else we're really concerned about when it comes to Europe is returning foreign fighters from Ukraine. Um, we, we see many uh, neo-Nazis traveling to Ukraine to fight um, alongside you know, sort of more uh, neo-Nazi inclined um, groups, whether that be, you know, right sector um or the misanthropic division, which are, are two kind of neo-Nazi uh, volunteer divisions that are fighting in that country currently. Um, we're concerned about many of these foreign fighters returning to their their homelands, whether that be Germany, Poland, France, Spain, Italy, um, with, um, you know, combat experience, um, with international and national connections, and potentially even with smuggled weaponry. Um, and that will present a threat moving forward. That's something that we are deeply concerned about, you know, from, from that violence perspective. So I think, yeah, the threat to Europe is is both political uh, and um, it's got that, that violent element as well. So that's something we're, we're deeply concerned about moving forward. Oh, sorry, you touched on Ukraine briefly, um, just because I know there's a sort of like the Russian conspiracy propaganda that all Ukrainians are white nationalist neo-Nazis. I mean, that's just a lot of a lot of nonsense. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's something, you know, I think which um, the Russians have been very, very good at is is propagating that idea. And, and we actually saw one neo-Nazi from the United States who did travel to Ukraine and fought alongside Ukrainian uh, soldiers and he was wearing, you know, face tattoos and the Russians put him on national right. uh, media. And they use these these small examples and they amplify these small examples to justify their aggression in Ukraine and that, you know, the kind of their own imperialist endeavor there. Um, you know, broadly speaking, that we also are tracking a lot of neo-Nazis who are on the Russian side and are fighting uh, for right. the, the Russians within Ukraine, such as, you know, members of the Wagner group uh, and the Rosich um, battalion as well. Um, so that's it's definitely a narrative that has been used by by Putin's government, by the, the Russians to justify their uh, their aggression in Ukraine. And, you know, obviously there's there's very little truth to that when you Right. talk about the macro level and you, you have a jewish president and the former prime minister before the current one was also a jew it was actually exactly. the first time in history that a country had a jewish president prime minister besides israel um so according to the questions uh how closely is the government monitoring these groups and here just to combine another one has law enforcement or jewish organizations been able to infiltrate these groups i'm assuming at some level um, yeah, so when, when the first half of that question, um, in terms of how, how closely law enforcement is looking at these groups, um, you know, we know that whenever there's any suggestion of illegality, we're providing stuff to law enforcement, uh, and they are um, actively tracking a number of these groups here in the United States, um, and, 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 you know, doing what they can to, to prevent um, illegality from happening, prevent, you know, that violence from, from occurring as well. Um, in terms of infiltration, you know, that's something that we have, you know, you hear about, and I, I presume there is some level of that, uh, but often that's very, very hard to know. And then talking about uh, what can be done to push back on white supremacy, someone's asking, is there any kind of preventable measures that can be taken before these groups take action? And, and what can, you know, all of us do? Yeah, well, I think, you know, one thing that is important to say is that that 
you know, groups like ours, groups like Memory, who are who are monitoring these groups online, that's a really, really important element in terms of pushing back and in terms of preventing escalation to the point of violence. Monitoring their chatter when it comes to you know these these online spaces where they're communicating with one another um, and they are you know planning their their actions, whether it be protests, demonstrations, or even violent attacks, is a really, really important role. So so you know support that that groups like ours can get is is really, really important. Uh, I'll also say one of the, the most important things we can do is, is remove the infrastructure of hate. Um, do what we can to, to undercut the, the spaces in which these groups are operating, whether that be putting pressure on platforms to, to remove these groups, whether that be to, to you know, put pressure on the likes of Cloudflare and, and other groups who are hosting, companies hosting these websites, or even, you know, taking a look at the, the um online stores, fundraising of these groups, um, take a look at their their situation in terms of taxes and stuff like that is something that memory is looking into and uh, and whether there's there are laws being broken that can be used um, to kind of limit these groups in terms of their ability to fundraise as well. Um, last year, we put out a, a, a major report on, on white supremacy use of cryptocurrency and how right. you know many cryptocurrency platforms have have allowed this these groups and ideas to proliferate. Um, so so I think putting pressure in these different sectors to undercut that infrastructure of hate is is probably the most effective thing we can do. And, and is, have they turned to cryptocurrency? That was another question here. Have white supremacist <laughs> groups really turned to that to try and evade uh, the government? For sure. Yeah, we, we definitely have seen uh, a lot of groups turning to cryptocurrency, particularly before the, the cryptocurrency crash of last year, um, whenever a, a lot of the cryptocurrencies were doing a little bit better. We saw many of these groups switching to Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, and um, probably most prominently Monero, um, which is a, a cryptocurrency they use, which um, kind of emphasizes privacy even more. Um, and um, it's kind of marketed as a completely untraceable cryptocurrency. Uh, so most of the fundraising that we're seeing is taking place using crypto now um, because it's got this veneer of untraceability, this right. veneer of, of privacy. And um, you know, while that's not always the case and authorities are, are pretty right. much always able to track down who's sending right. where, um, it's definitely an idea that, that many of these groups have have latched onto. Many are also promoting the idea of a parallel economy uh, and kind of detaching from the broader, you know, banking system and, and creating their own uh, parallel economy there using their own currencies, their own uh, versions of different softwares like PayPal, etc. So um, that that's that's something which you know. I, Money is money is everything to these groups, and and that's how they operate. So uh, that's something we're monitoring closely, and, and needs to be um, eyes need to be kept on that. Right. You know, uh, unfortunately for these groups, uh, right, authorities are capable of tracking down cryptocurrency. Um, Israel's done it with Hamas. Um, I know America's done it. It's not as secure as some people may think it is. And actually, speaking of Hamas, people were interested, and I actually have a pamphlet from you. Do you have in PDF form? And I can maybe send out the link when we send a follow-up. People have, uh, two people have questions on, do we have report and data on this sort of infatuation between neo-Nazi groups and Hamas? Is that a report that you guys actually put out that I can link people to? 
We do have that report. Um, now, in most cases, our reports are, are primarily for, for law enforcement audiences, but we have redacted versions which we send out to, to broader audiences. And anybody who is interested in reading those can, can certainly reach out to, to me or, or to memory as an organization, um, and we can provide that, that um, information. Um, and we also have email lists and stuff like that where we can share uh, a lot of our research findings via those. Okay, I'll try and get that for everybody. I, I was literally reading, it's a pretty thick document that details a lot of the sort of people that I was talking to earlier, and there's a lot more in there of these groups that sort of have this infatuation with Hamas and uh, the Islamic Jihad groups. Um, here's another one. Uh, I would like to hear what you think about the proposition that extreme right popularity activity is in part a reaction to the extreme left sort of progressive uh, activist community what we're seeing now mm -hmm. yeah i i think you know that's that is a line that is is quite often uh propagated by many of these groups themselves you know they, they talk about being sort of anti-woke is the terminology they use right. or or whatever and and quite often you know we've seen that that these groups can and do operate in vacuums the you know these ideas do emerge they white supremacy has always existed in in, in political contexts you know throughout the last 100 uh, to 150 years um so so i don't think that those are necessary uh, conditions for the emergence of of white supremacist or neo-nazi ideas uh, but i think that these groups do um very intentionally use uh, broader societal discontentment as as an excuse or or as a as a, an environment in which they can um uh, become more public uh, with their activism uh, and it gives them kind of this uh, veneer of, of legitimacy that they can claim um, that, that kind of gives them space to, to propagate their ideas. You know, we saw in 2020 during uh, the, the sort of unrest in the summer there, um, many, many groups really latching on to the Black Lives Matter movement as something to oppose and something to, you know, groups that had existed prior to that summer uh, suddenly became a lot more uh, popular as they kind of latched onto those ideas, used those hashtags, etc., cetera, um, to promote their idea. So I would say that these groups exist, can and can exist within a vacuum, uh, but they do use, um, you know, opposing political ideas to, to you know, Sort of fan the flames and exactly. indoctrinate and and, and uh, I guess uh, to activate and and you know engage people. Uh, obviously, probably twisting a lot of things that are actually said for their own purposes. Two more quick questions. One, mm -hmm. um, the ADL recently there was sort of a, a threat that it was going to be I don't remember White Supremacy Day or a day of rage and hate, and that didn't happen. And apparently, it was just some small group in Idaho that you know, put out a telegram message, sort of maybe tell us a little bit what happened there with that day of hate that never happened. But also, I guess the idea of, you know, overreacting like the Goyim Defense League, sort of overreacting to anything that's out there versus, you know, real threats uh, that we really need to be concerned about. Yeah. And th this is one of the hardest things when it comes to our job and when it comes to, you know, the broader societal level. Uh, one of the hardest things is discerning what is a legitimate threat and what is not. Right. Um, in many cases, people, you know, talk a big game and then nothing happens. That white supremacist death hit. I think in that case, um, there was a network of groups. You know, we we tracked that that very, very closely. There was a network of groups. There was um, you know, Iowa, Idaho, New York, um, and uh one other location, which I can't remember, I think California actually, uh, right. we're communicating and we're talking about this this international day of hate. Um, however, 
uh, in advance of that, in the days leading up to it, um, the Chicago Police Department and the New York Police Department both put out statements warning communities about it, uh, warning that they would be uh, taking a hardline approach to any activities that, that broke the law relating to this day of hate. Um, and I think that that scared a lot of these groups. Um, and I think that kind of thing is very, very effective in terms of, of combating these plans when they're being talked about. Um, as you said, when it comes to the likes of the GDL and, and other groups like that, which which are very public, um, you know, it's never safe to say that violence is impossible coming from these groups. It's never safe to to say, oh, it's just talk or uh, this is all rhetorical because there's always the possibility of violence. And similarly, you know, sometimes violence can seemingly come completely out of a vacuum. Um, many of the mass shooters that we've seen, many of the white supremacist terrorists that we've seen uh, leave very little trail before they they embark upon their, their sort of violent uh, um, actions in whatever form that might be. So I think just constantly monitoring and, and making sure that we're staying on top of these spaces online uh, is really, really, really important element of, of combating uh, groups and preventing violence. Right. And then one last one. In the wake of the Kanye West anti-Semitic uh, tirades, the slogan, yay is right, change my mind, has been gaining traction with extremist circles. Um, why would they pick up a slogan from someone from the Black community like this? Mm -hmm. I think a, a key, it's, it's something that, you know, they've really, really pushed in, in the past few months. And I think a key part of this is, again, this sort of veneer of legitimacy that they grasp for. Um, and they believe that if they can promote the idea of a... Um, sort of anti-Semitic alliance with whether it be Black nationalists, uh, other Black anti-Semites, um, they can promote the idea of, of the world against Jews, right? The, the, of creating a, an alliance that, um, you know, crosses racial boundaries with this one united enemy. We talked about, obviously, the, the attempted alliances with, uh, you know, jihadists and Islamist groups as well. It's all part of the same impulse. It's all part of that same idea of, of trying to portray the ultimate enemy as the Jews um, and trying to create an alliance which can, can be kind of used to um to to promote that further violence and, and to promote the the expulsion or extermination of Jews from the United States. So there's no surprise there that that many people use the Yay is right hashtag um, in order to build that that broader alliance there. Well we're at time. I want to thank everyone for joining us today for this great discussion, eye-opening discussion, important discussion. Um, to keep updated on all our work and all our events, please visit ccfpeace.com, ccfpeace.com. That's where you can also donate so we can bring you these great conversations. Simon, please let everyone know where they can find your work and find you on social media. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I can be found on uh, Twitter primarily uh, by searching Dr. Simon Purdue. I'm there. That's where I'll share much of my uh, work. Uh, I can also be caught on email at spurdue at memory.org if you get any questions about uh, our work here at memory um, or if you want to request any of our work um, there as well or, or you know find out how to support our work. Um, you can You can always email me there. Great. And Memory is a great organization doing very important work, not only in white, uh, you know, supremacy, but a lot of the stuff in the extremist groups in Israel um, exposing hate there. So we hope to see everyone soon. In the meantime, please stay safe. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Thanks.